Welcome to today's podcast, sponsored by Hillsdale College, all things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. I encourage you to take advantage of the many free online courses there. And, of course, to listen to the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of them at Q for hillsdale.com, or just Google Apple, iTunes, and Hillsdale. Morning, glory, America. Bonjour, high Canada. Happy Martin Luther King Day to you, America. I know that it is a day off for most of you, but it is the Iowa caucus day, so I'm here. I still have laryngitis. I, uh... I shut up most of the weekend, didn't scream during the Browns' loss because there wasn't anything to scream about. Boy, that was a crushing blow, but a great team. They'll be back. Congratulations to the Green Bay Packer fans, uh, my my sympathies to the Cowboys fans, and Bravo Lions. But, boy, the Browns got blown out. Um, I know that the headline of the day is Iowa. Let me run through it for you. From the Wall Street Journal, as Iowa prepares to vote, focuses on who places second to Donald Trump. Last night, Patrick Ruffini, who's one of the best. I don't do predictions myself because you have to be able to read polling data very well. Patrick Ruffini said the only question is whether the former president breaks 60% or not. He tends to dominate Republican voters under the age of 50. I think they will go out tonight. I think he's got an organization. I wouldn't doubt that he breaks 60, but we'll see. I don't know. Dangerous sub-zero wind, chill, blanks, mu- blankets, much of the U.S. It's cold out there. It's really cold in Iowa. Be careful, folk. Trump-dominated Iowa race barrels to a contentious fi- uh, finish in frigid weather, Washington Post. Uh, from the New York Times, how college-educated Republicans learn to love Trump again. From the Washington Post, ordained by God, Trump's legal problems galvanize Iowa evangelicals. From Rich Lowry at the National Review, Jack Smith is an arcan- arsonist. From NBC News, fears grow that Trump will use the military in dictatorial ways if he returns to the White House. What a joke. I mean, really, what a joke. Uh, And from the Washington Post, Haley poised for second place. Can she deliver her voters? The question is, who can deliver anyone? Also, the Houthis got off another uh, cruise missile attack on an American destroyer last night. F-18 shot it down. Uh, If we want deterrence every time they fire one, we should fire 50. Uh, it is the 101st day of the war yesterday on the 100th day of the war in Israel. Um, more than uh, the the Israeli Defense Forces released all the numbers for the first time. More than 9,000 Hamas members killed from 10-8 forward. Of course, more than 1,000 were killed on that. More than 11,000 rockets have been fired from Hamas into Israel. Yesterday, an elderly woman and her son were killed at home in a Hezbollah attack from the north, a missile. This is the same day that there appeared a story in Axios that Joe Biden is growing impatient with Benjamin Netanyahu. I'll talk with Matthew Cotteny and others about that later in the day. It's upside down. It's backwards. Uh, Let's go get some quick Iowa cuts from yesterday. Donald Trump at an Iowa rally, cut number two. I will direct a completely overhauled DOJ to investigate every radical, out-of-control prosecutor in America for their illegal, racist, and reverse enforcement of the law. I'm also going to indemnify all police officers and law enforcement officers throughout the United States to protect them from being destroyed by the radical left for taking strong action on crime. We're going to stop crime in our country. And we will take over the horribly run capital of our nation. Horribly run. We have a capital. 
that we all love right now. It's a rat-infested, graffiti-infested shithole. Horrible. Where people are being killed. This week, three people were shot. People are being killed just for walking into a park, which is now littered with tents and homeless. The, um, so he continued, cut number three. On day one, I will sign a new executive order to cut federal funding for any school, pushing critical race theory, transgender insanity, and other inappropriate racial, sexual, or political content on our children. And I will not give one penny to any school that has a vaccine mandate or mask mandate. Nikki Haley, also in Iowa, but she was on Fox News Sunday yesterday with Shannon Bream, cut number 11. I think we've always had a target on our back because we've been the one moving up. Everybody else is going down. And that's a great thing. But the real poll, you know, is on caucus day. And what we've said is we just want to come out of Iowa looking strong. We want to come out of New Hampshire strong. We want to come out of South Carolina strong. This is, you know, continuing state by state and trying to get every single vote that we can. And we're not going to stop until that very last second. And then finally, Ron DeSantis was in uh, on this week with Jonathan Carl, cut number 19. Well, Donald Trump's running for his issues. I'm running for your issues and your family's issues and solely to turn this country around. Uh, I've delivered on 100 percent of my promises. Donald Trump obviously didn't build the wall, didn't drain the swamp uh, and didn't reduce the debt. I've also taken on and beaten the Democrats and the left. And in reality, Donald Trump as president uh, oftentimes got beat by the Democrats at the border. He got beat on debt. Uh, And so we have an opportunity to have a two term president, uh, someone that's going to be able to win decisively uh, and then actually bring all this stuff into fruition. And I'm the guy to do it. Now, they they will continue. I'll bring all the results in the morning. It won't be until late tonight that we know what they are. I do want to honor Martin Luther King by playing for you the presentation by Dr. Tal Becker, Israel's lead counsel at the International Court of Justice. Now, the proceeding that South Africa triggered at the International Court of Justice by accusing Israel of committing genocide against the Palestinians is a charade and a farce, a terrible damage to South Africa's reputation, to the reputation of its leadership. I'll never go there. I really, I have, I will have never set foot in South Africa until this regime has changed. It is so gross what they've done. But Dr. Tal Becker was among those who presented for Israel. And throughout the course of the show today, I want you to hear what he had to say. Let's begin cut number 29 from his argument on Friday. Madam President, distinguished members of the court, it is an honor to appear before you again on behalf of the state of Israel. The State of Israel is singularly aware of why the Genocide Convention, which has been invoked in these proceedings, was adopted. Seared in our collective memory is the systematic murder of six million Jews as part of a premeditated and heinous program for their total annihilation. Given the Jewish people's history and its foundational texts, It is not surprising that Israel was among the first states to ratify the Genocide Convention without reservation and to incorporate its provisions in its domestic legislation. For some, the promise of never again for all peoples is a slogan. For Israel, it is the highest moral obligation. 
Raphael Lemkin, a Polish Jew who witnessed the unspeakable horrors of the Holocaust, is credited with coining the term genocide. He helped the world recognize that the existing legal lexicon was simply inadequate to capture the devastating evil that the Nazi Holocaust unleashed. The applicant has now sought to invoke this term in the context of Israel's conduct in a war it did not start and did not want, a war in which Israel is defending itself against Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and other terrorist organizations whose brutality knows no bounds. The civilian suffering in this war, like in all wars, is tragic. It is heartbreaking. The harsh realities of the current hostilities are made especially agonizing for civilians, given Hamas's reprehensible strategy of seeking to maximize civilian harm to both Israelis and Palestinians, even as Israel seeks to minimize it. But as this court has already made clear, the Genocide Convention was not designed to address the brutal impact of intensive hostilities on the civilian population, even when the use of force raises, quote, very serious issues of international law and involves un enormous suffering and continuing loss of life, end quote. The Convention was set apart to address a malevolent crime of the most exceptional severity. We live at a time when words are cheap. In an age of social media and identity politics, the temptation to reach for the most outrageous term, to vilify and demonize, has become for many irresistible. Hold it right there. I will come back with more from Dr. Becker after the break. It's a magnificent statement. The bringing of the charge of genocide by South Africa has done great damage to South Africa's already tattered reputation. But Israel took the opportunity through great advocacy begun by Dr. Becker and led by others to demolish the charge and to educate the world. So they, they made some good out of a carnival. I'll be right back, America. Stay tuned. It's Iowa Caucus Day, Martin Luther King Day. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Welcome back, America. 30 years ago, the Washington Post, 30 years ago, 1993, maybe 34 years ago, the Washington Post published a story for which they had to apologize, which deemed evangelicals poorly educated and easily led. Then yesterday, a story appeared in the Post, ordained by God, Trump's legal problems galvanize Iowa evangelicals. Now, I'm here to tell you that there's a bell curve in everything. I have taught con law since 1996, and because the American Bar Association requires this, every student exam has to be objective, and it has to be graded blind. So I get blue books, or the computer equivalent of blue books. I don't know who they wrote them. I make sure my tests objectively test knowledge and grasp, and it always, you know, I've been teaching since 96 usually, uh, four classes a year, sometimes two. And I always give it three-hour exam. It's always called a racehorse exam. 
and it is never not a bell curve. Like there, ten percent of the people just don't get it. Ten percent of the people astonishment, astonish me, and then in between there's the middle. So for anything to write anything about evangelicals is wrong out of the gate. But this article is so very, very wrong. And it is particularly wrong about how Trump is wrong to cite persecution of Christians. This is what he said, the writer put, Trump has accused the Biden administration of discriminating against people of faith, suggesting at a campaign event in Waterloo, Iowa, that, quote, Christians and Americans of faith are being persecuted and the government has been weaponized against religion like never before. Fact checkers, however, have debunked that claim. Experts on religious liberty, such as John Inazu from Washington University in St. Louis, cite multiple major religion-related Supreme Court cases and say religious freedom is perhaps more protected than ever. Okay, I want you to understand a few things. First of all, the government has been weaponized against Christians like never before. It happened during COVID, which was a once-in-a-lifetime event. It has happened repeatedly when places like the Philadelphia Archdiocese, where Catholic Charities was was prohibited until the diocese sued from assisting in the adoption of children because they would only adopt to traditional married couple, a man and a woman. And yes, the Supreme Court has decided many, many, many cases for Christians, but they had to do so because they are being persecuted at a rate never before. So what I want to say is this is an ill-informed and poorly edited piece. It's very unusual for the Washington Post. But for 30 years, the Washington Post has not understood evangelicals. And anyone who makes a sweeping statement about evangelicals doesn't know what they're talking about. I am myself an evangelical Roman Catholic Presbyterian. So I'm a member in good state ending cradle Catholic. And I attend the Presbyterian Church, of which I've been a session member twice. I'm proud of both affiliations, one river, two banks. I use both of them. I know evangelicals. And I know articles like this are written by people who do not know evangelicals. And they certainly don't know anything about constitutional law. Uh, I'm going to not do a market update this morning because I'll, I'll wait. There are no markets today, but I do want to play more of Dr. Talbecker making his opening argument against South Africa on Friday. Continue, please. Words should still matter. Where truth should still matter, it is surely a court of law. The applicant has regrettably put before the court a profoundly distorted factual and legal picture. The entirety of its case hinges on a deliberately curated, decontextualized, and manipulative description of the reality of current hostilities. South Africa purports to come to this court in the lofty position of a guardian of the interest of humanity. But in delegitimizing Israel's 75-year existence in its opening presentation yesterday, that broad commitment to humanity rang hollow. And in its sweeping counterfactual description of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it seemed to erase both Jewish history and any Palestinian agency or responsibility. Indeed, the delegitimization of Israel since its very establishment in 1948 in the applicant submissions sounded barely distinguishable from Hamas's own rejectionist rhetoric. 
It is unsurprising, therefore, that in the applicant's telling, both Hamas's responsibility for the situation in Gaza and the very humanity of its Israeli victims are removed from view. The attempt to weaponize the term genocide against Israel in the present context does more than tell the court a grossly distorted story. And it does more than empty the word of its unique force and special meaning. It subverts the object and purpose of the convention itself, with ramifications for all states seeking to defend themselves against those who demonstrate total disdain for life and for the law. Yeah, stop it right there. More of Dr. Becker later in the show. Bethany Mandel is going to join me next from Israel, where she is reporting today. I've got a lot coming up. Matt Continenti going to be on the show today. Jim Garrity. I'm going to play for you the rest of Dr. Becker. There's not much to say about Iowa because caucuses really can't be polled, except Donald Trump's doing very well. I'll be right back, America. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America, on Iowa Caucus Day and on Martin Luther King Day. It's the 101st day of the war in Israel. Joining me from Israel is our friend Bethany Mandel. Good morning, Bethany. I know you're not on video this morning because of bandwidth issues. But what took you to Israel? So I'm actually right now with uh, a family that was released, one of the one of the hostages that was released. And so I'm, I'm helping them coordinate uh, an interview later today. And so um, we were able to arrange an interview for them. And I said, well, I, I would like to be there, actually. I would like to actually experience um, what has been happening here for the last hundred days. Um, yesterday, I went to their kibbutz. I went to Kafar Aza, and I, I saw everything with my own eyes. And Whew, what a visit. I'm only here for three full days, so it's, it's a real quick turnaround time. Bethany, um, were you there when the arguments were being made at the International Court of Justice? I am replaying Dr. Becker's opening statement in the course of today's show because it was so powerful, but it's still a charade and an absolute insult to the world that South Africa brought a chart of genocide against Israel. What's the reaction been in Israel to that proceeding? I, I think it's um, it's a lot of laughing, quite honestly. Um, it, it's such an indignation that people just sort of see it as a farce because it is. Um, I, I, I don't even think that they're even capable of feeling hurt by it um, because the focus here is on the hostages. The focus is that they're still over 100 people who are being held hostage, none of whom who have access to basic medical care or adequate food or even the Red Cross. And that's that's really the focus right now um, with everyone. And so all of this is all this is a sideshow at what's happening at The Hague, because how can you try a people for genocide who have been the victims of genocide twice now, both in the Holocaust and on October 7th? And, you know, beforehand, obviously, the long history of the Jewish people and genocide. And she called the response to the most recent genocide, a genocide perpetrated by Jews, is, is laughable. Uh, yesterday, two Israelis, a, um, an older woman and her son, were killed by Hezbollah missile fire on the north. The people with whom yeah. you are working, the people with whom you are talking, do they think an uh, expansion of the war is inevitable? Yes. Yeah, I, I so it was scary. I was in Kafar Aza yesterday, and there was a rocket siren, and we had to run into one of the homes of um, one of the individuals who was killed, and we had to run into his bedroom. And 
sand among all of his belongings, his backpacks, his shoes, everything. And we stood and we sheltered in his bedroom. And then we looked at our phones an hour later and we saw that uh, a mother and her son, um, you know, an adult son and, and a seven-year-old mother were killed by a rocket. But there's a lot of feeling here that the war is going to expand, that it's going to get so much worse, that when Lebanon gets involved, it's going to be um, real serious, um, scary time for the country. And I think that everyone's sort of bracing themselves for that inevitability. Incredibly, there is a story in Axios this morning that President Biden is, quote, losing patience, close quote, with Prime Minister Netanyahu. I wonder when he's going to lose patience with Hezbollah in Iran. But what do you what do you hear about this in Israel? I think there's a lot of frustration that he should be losing patience with the fact that there are still American hostages being held. And he's never said any of them. He's never used any of their names. Um, I, I think that there there was an argument a long time ago that making some hostages more notable and more uh, renowned than others put a put a figure on their heads. And I think that that happened yesterday when Hamas released a hostage video of one of the most famous hostages, Noah Argamani, the young woman who was taken on the back of a motorcycle from the Nova Festival. Um, but the the Pandora's box has been opened on that front. Everyone. Um, has the ability to know the names of, of the American citizens that are there. A lot of their families went to the White House and had visits, and it would be awfully nice for the United States president to say Herschel Goldberg Poland, to say Eden Alexander, to say any of the names of the five or six American hostages that we know are being held by Hamas right now. He's never mentioned any of them by name. Yeah, neither did Secretary of State Blinken in his post yesterday calling attention to the 100th day of their captivity. Uh, Bethany, give us a little sense of of how the mood is, I, I, this is a hard question because you can't talk to yeah. 9 million Israelis, but tell us about the mood. Right. I mean, it depends on where you are. I mean, there's a sense of fatigue, but there's also a sense of determination. I think ultimately everyone here understands that to prevent anything like this again, um, this has to be a different war. It has to be fought a different way. This is not going to be a tit for tat, and we can't go back to the status quo of, you know, occasional rocket fire and, and the, the understanding is that Hamas has to be eliminated because this can never happen again. And so, you know, it's been 101 days. There is weariness for sure. I mean, there's I just had lunch with a friend whose husband has been in reserves for months and she's tired. She has three young children and she's working a full time job alone. She's a single mom basically right now and worried sick about her husband all the time. And yet she knows that he has to stay until the job is done. And. How long did she expect that to be, Bethany? I mean, we're hearing anecdotally that they're booking hotel rooms for people who have evacuated from the north up through the end of February. That's something that also a lot of people don't understand, that million, not millions, I'm sorry, hundreds of thousands of Israelis are still living in hotels. My hotel that I'm staying in in Tel Aviv is full of displaced Israelis. Um, every single hotel here is full of displaced Israelis, so people have gotten through an unbelievable trauma, are now living out of suitcases now for three months and counting. So uh, when they see that you're over from America to help, what do they think of America's response? I mean, I think they they think about it in in two different ways. They think about the American Jewish community, which has really stepped up. Um, There have been constant solidarity missions. People are on the farms in the South 
Um, a lot of these southern communities that were the hardest hit were farming communities. They were citrus growers. They were pineapple farmers. Um, they And so uh, strawberries. So they have people who are coming from Canada, from America, from Australia, who are coming just to pick oranges off the trees so that Amer- so that Israel still has oranges and that the fruit doesn't rot on the trees. Um, and so I think that they're really pleased with the American Jewish response, not just the American Jewish response, the American Christian response has been incredible as well. And uh, that's something that I've been told to share as well, that they deeply appreciate the support of the religious Christians in America. Um, there's been some things that people are really happy about with the Biden administration, but I think you know, as the Biden administration is quote-unquote losing patience with Netanyahu, I think that there's a sense that America, that Israelis here are losing patience with Americans in some respects. For example, the CIA just formed a task force two days ago to share intelligence about the location of hostages and Hamas terrorists. Why was that a headline 90, 97 days later? Wow. Why wasn't that a headline three days later? The CIA just formed that task force. What, is it have been, what has it been doing for the last three months? So that's a question that a lot of people are asking here. I, I want to close by politics in Israel is always a contact sport. How much yeah. of that breaks through even in this wartime? Um, I, I think that there's a very loud minority of, of individuals who are trying to make this a political moment. But ultimately, I think that people understand that we need to get through these next few months. Um, and then, I mean, heads are going to roll. There's no doubt about it. But I think that there's a hope that we can keep that at bay until the end of the war. And then there's there's going to be some necessary accountability held. Bethany Mandel, thanks for joining me. Safe travel home. We'll talk to you again next Thank week. You. Hello to all of our Thank friends you. in Israel. And um, tell them I just ignore the president. He doesn't represent the United States. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Matt Cottonetti is the author most recently of The Right... It's a wonderful book, which I recommend to everyone. He's a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, a contributing columnist often everywhere, but always a voice on the commentary podcast. And it's good to see you again, Matt. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you, Hugh. I have laryngitis and I blame Christine Rosen. I caught it from listening to the commentary podcast. (laughs) Well, we're so happy that you're a regular listener now. Oh, I find it. I think it's actually the best podcast group podcast on radio. Um, I I think you guys have hit a groove. Did you expect it to be this successful? Uh, I I, I don't know. I mean, we just have fun talking about the news, about the commentary uh, podcast, and it kind of reminds me of old editorial meetings. You know, you get a group of journalists together and you talk about what's going on and you crack some jokes. I do know that we've had a big uptick in audience since October 7th, and that's unfortunate. But I also think it underscores the severity of the issues that play in the world today, in the future of Israel, the future of America's role in the world, um, the fate of the Jewish people. All these things are big issues, and people are interested in them, thinking about them. And so uh, they turn to the commentary podcast. Yeah, Matt, I think 10-7 is such a defining issue. It's caused me to, to change how I do media. I used to have a lot more fun on Twitter I used to talk a lot more about sports. I don't feel like it's appropriate. I wonder if you feel like that, that we're in a season where I'll do a little bit of sports, a little bit of humor, but I'm I'm just not inclined to do much online in this era because it's so serious. That's a serious business. But even amidst the seriousness, I think it's important to remember the things that do matter in life. 
uh, the things that give us pleasure, the things that are beautiful. And so uh, I haven't given up on sports, Hugh. In fact, uh, my condolences for the, the Browns this weekend. Um, uh, but uh, so I've, I'm still enjoying sports. As, oh, yeah, uh, I, as I think of blue. I have to deal with Congressman issues. Gallagher this week. It's going to be tough. It's going to be tough for a Packers yeah, fan. Yeah, it will be the, tough, won't it? <laughs> the Cowboys fans, though, they're feeling even worse. Let me get some serious stuff in here. I've been playing Dr. Tal Becker's remarkable 32-minute opening address to the International Court of Justice on Friday. Have you had a chance to listen to that yet, Matt Continenti? I've just read some excerpts, but they were very powerful. Uh, I, I'm not a bad advocate. I've listened to some great advocates. It's an amazing thing. Do you think that South Africa has injured itself in the international community's eyes by bringing this outrageous, slanderous blood libel against Israel? Well, it de- um, unfortunately, it depends on what part of the so-called international community you're talking about. I do think most of the um, Atlantic Alliance, the Western powers, which of course include uh, East Asian nations like Japan and South Korea, I think they um, look uh, very negatively on what South Africa has been up to. On the other hand, this new axis of powers associated with the global South, some in Latin America, some in Africa, many in the Middle East, aligning with Iran, with China, with Russia, I think they like what South Africa is doing because it's one more way to subvert um, Israel, one more way to subvert American leadership and America's allies. And so what we see today, Hugh, is I think a divided world, uh, one in which um, you can put a a nation like Israel on the dock uh, for just slanderous accusations. Um, And yet um, you're going to have a lot of people, a lot of nations backing South Africa because of their desire to rewrite the rules of the game, rewrite the nature of the, the world's uh, leadership and uh, bring Israel and the United States down. You know, if the ICJ upholds the request for a preliminary injunction, I believe it will discredit the ICJ and destroy that body's utility in the world, which has been occasionally significant. Uh, Matt Continenti, I want to ask you about the Axios story last night. Joe Biden is, quote, running out of patience with Bibi, close quote. Now, that story was written before Hezbollah murdered two Israelis, a father, a a son and his mother, via missile attack in the north. And before another terror attack in Israel today, a car ramming where 11 people are injured moments ago. How can Biden be running out of patience with Israel and with Bibi? What's your reaction to that headline, Matt Continenti? My reaction is uh, more of the same. Uh, We have seen this pattern of headlines and strategic leaks, Hugh, from the White House, apparently showing Biden and his team's displeasure at Netanyahu and the Israeli uh, military leadership, certainly the Israeli political coalition governing the country. And it's drip, 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 uh, trying to illustrate that the administration is tired of Israel. They're really going to start, you know, being severe about Israel, uh, there will be consequences for Israel, and yet nothing actually happens on the ground. Um, aid does continue to flow, and the Israelis are continuing their military operations, even as they've shifted to a lower gear in northern Gaza. So I see this as a way for Biden to placate his base. So much of the Biden foreign policy, Hugh, is aimed at 
domestic political considerations. And right now, Biden is terrified, uh, rightly so, that his coalition is coming apart. And so he's leaking these stories. The White House is leaking these stories, I think, in order to somehow appease uh, the jackals of the left uh, who are abandoning him and threatening his chances of reelection. That is a good explanation. I have heard a lot of people from the remarkable Dan Senor to Aviv Rettiger and, of course, to our weekly guest, Dr. Oren, argue that the United States' actual support is real, even if the rhetorical support wanders. But I begin to wonder if the signal they're trying to send to their domestic political base isn't being misread by Iran. Isn't that the real risk, Matt, that you're signaling you're far left in the, the United States, but the people who are reading it are the IRGC? That's right. There are a lot of different people who uh, read the messages of the commander in chief. And uh, I do think that the lack of resolve or the, the mixed messages coming from this administration have uh, empowered Iran to continue its malign behavior. And it's not just rhetoric, Hugh. It's the fact that since October 7th, despite more than 100 attacks of Iranian-aligned proxies in Syria and Iraq on our forces, uh, despite up until last Thursday, dozens of attacks on commercial shipping in the Red Sea by the Houthis, Iran and its proxies have paid little price uh, imposed by the United States. And most important, Iran itself has paid no price. And I think it was Naftali Bennett, the former Israeli prime minister, who put it very well. He said, you know, Iran is an octopus in the Middle East. Its tentacles cause havoc. And people spend so much time trying to fight the tentacles where they really need to go after the head of the octopus. And when you do impose costs on Iran, on the IRGC, on the uh, mullahs, um, on Iranian military assets, the Iranians stop. But so far, we haven't done that because I think the Biden and his team continue to pursue this illusion of uh, detente with Iran somewhere down the road. Operation Praying Mantis is the guidebook to what ought to happen here. Matt, have you read Sleepwalkers, how Europe went to war in 1914 by Sir Christopher Clark, the Oxford historian, who, um, who really detailed it? Have you had a chance to read that? Yeah, it came out uh, about a decade ago. Yes, yeah. it was a very good book. Do you feel we're in the same sort of period sleepwalking? Because it seems to me, no matter what Iran does, no matter what Xi does, no matter what Putin does, we will not connect the dots into the inevitable. Uh, maybe it's go time for the bad guys in the world, given the infirmity of the president and the lowness of our defense spending. It, feel, it feels like sleepwalking. It feels like we're kind of faded toward this uh, global conflict, which in many ways has already started. But I also take a page from our late friend, Charles Krathammer, who said that uh, you can fight against fate and you can make choices. These are political choices America has made, really beginning in the 1990s, Hugh, to cut its defenses. The most powerful force in the universe is compound interest. And since we've continued to cut our defenses over the decades, we've now left ourselves with very little power in the world. We found ourselves with these shortages. We have to make tough choices between Ukraine and Taiwan. We have a Navy that has shrunk. So you see a direct line between the shrinking of the American Navy, the lessening of our naval power in the world, and then the rise of these fanatical terrorist pirates, the Houthis, able to terrorize uh, global shipping, able to challenge the rule of law in the global commons of 
America, of the world's sea lanes. So we have to reverse these poor choices. And I do think that has to begin with reversing the poor choice the country made in 2020. But then it means truly reinvesting in defense and tr truly showing a commitment to uh, American power in the world and to imposing costs on the adversaries of the free world. That's what is happening right now. Powers like China, Russia, Iran, they are now working in unison in order to displace America as the most powerful force in the world. And if you do that, then it certainly will make us less safe at home. And it will also diminish the freedoms that we hold most dear, not only around the world, but I think even in America itself, as you see these powers insinuate themselves into our own politics, into our own society. I wrote a long piece for Fox News over the weekend, Matt, called this election will be about 10-7, not about 1-6. Uh, I believe most of Beltway Manhattan media elite wants to view this coming election through the lens of 1-6, but that Republicans and most independents are going to view it through 10-7 and their pocketbook. What do you think? I think that's really the question. I think that the, the Biden administration, the Biden campaign, is going to devote almost all of its resources to two issues. One will be the abortion issue. And the other will be January 6th. And we already saw that with Biden's speech at Valley Forge the other week. And that's because abortion and January 6th slash democracy are all the Biden team has left. Um, Americans have given up on the Biden economy. They're not looking at these big macro statistics. They're looking at the double digit rise in the price level since Biden took office. I think Americans are also looking at chaos in the world and they're rightly blaming Biden. And they have the sense that things are out of control. And so all Biden can do is attempt to scare the electorate. He'll try racial appeals. Uh, he'll try uh, abortion. And he'll try uh, January 6th and the specter of another Trump term. Well, but I uh, have Very quickly, Matt Cotton, if you work. could name a vice president today, if the former president sweeps Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina and it's over, I want him to name his nominee, running mate quickly, and his cabinet. Who would you put on that ticket? I think Tim Scott would make the most okay. sense for Trump. I think it would help unify the party, and I think it would um, energize uh, the party. Interesting. I want Cotton or Gallagher... O'Brien or Pompeo, Joni Ernst or Dan Sullivan. I want a warrior, but we'll see. Matt Continenti, author of The Right, thank you. Coming in, good luck on Commentary Podcast today. You are live from the ReliefFactor.com studio, West Coast. I've still got laryngitis. I want to bring you the breaking news. 18 have been wounded, one critically, five seriously in Ra, Anana, Israel. A car ramming and knifing spree by two Palestinians from Hebron, Many of them involved in many of the injured are children. Uh, I'm joined by Jim Garrity, writes the morning jolt for National Review, contributing columnist to the Washington Post, my colleague there. Good morning, Jim. How are you? Good morning, Hugh. Sorry we got to start out with such grim news. I know. It's just, it's incredible. I want to begin with the second story as well. Yesterday at Axios, the headline was, Biden, quote, running out, close quote, of patience with BB as Gaza war hits 100 days. What do you make of that? Running out of patience with a prime minister who they lost two to Hezbollah yesterday and 18 injured today. 
Well, if you look at Joe Biden as a guy who was shaped by the Vietnam War and very much, you know, among those who was pushing for the end of the war as quickly as possible. I know that Biden likes to pretend or, or likes to sound like Winston Churchill when it comes to the Russia-Ukraine war. Uh, but then, I'll, you know, so we will stand with Ukraine for as long as it takes. And then, like, you find out that, you know, well, actually, we're telling Ukraine we can't support you forever. And uh, you're going to have to we, it's going to take us a while. It's going to take us eight months to get you the, the tanks. You're on your own. You know, um, Biden likes to talk a good game. And it went, immediately he, he had the right thing to do right after those attacks by Hamas. He went over to Israel and he said, we will stand with you as long as it takes. And now we find out 100 days later, it's like, all right, wrap it up. Well, come on. This is turning into a political liability for me. So, by the way, it's actually not a political liability for him. Twitter is not real life. You look at the polling numbers, the overwhelming majority of Democrats still support Israel. Overwhelming majority of Democrats think Biden should stand by Israel. Um, but the very loud types and apparently the White House intern corps, you know, interns. And, and look, Hugh, Biden can't, you know, irritate the White House interns. You know, who's going to make the coffee then? Jim Garrity, let me ask you about first. Thank you for being gracious and not bringing up the Browns. Uh <laughs> It was a pretty brutal weekend. What, was there a football game on Saturday? I didn't see anything. Yeah. Nothing Nothing happened. There was nothing to see there. Boy, whoever that 30-year-old offensive coordinator you, from the Texans is, how he bad does that make the, the Jets, Jets look, though, two weeks ago? Yeah. Uh, I'm just going to say, all that. that's the Joe Flacco we know. That was yeah. the Joe Flacco we remember. I am less than shocked that the uh, – the coach turned into a pumpkin again. So well, no, I, it wasn't actually his fault. The, the offensive coordinator for the Texans, who's like 28, just had us completely, the best defense in the NFL, completely fogged. All right, Jim, let's go to Iowa. Uh, I don't do predictions because I don't have polling data in front of me that everyone else hadn't seen. But I do follow what Ruffini said. Ruffini said the only question mm -hmm. is whether Trump breaks 60%. If he does break 60%, yeah. what does that tell you? Um, well, one, what looked like a very uncompetitive primary is indeed a very uncompetitive primary. Um, look, I, I was out there last week for six days. I planned to be out there for five days, but the blizzard had other plans. Um, people were telling me that DeSantis has a really good organization and that should be he should perform better than his final poll numbers. But his final poll numbers are pretty low. That's not an astoundingly high bar to clear. Um, I'd be surprised if he finishes third, I think you have that really tough question of where do you go from here? He's not really competing in New Hampshire. The numbers in South Carolina aren't going to look that good. And I don't think a disappointing result tonight will help anything. He's not winning in his home state of Florida. Trump's still ahead, well ahead there. Where do you go? Where, do you, and the question is maybe do you have this attitude of like, okay, maybe Trump has a heart attack. Maybe something with one of the indictments makes it look really bad for Trump. I don't think that's going to change. I think the Des Moines Register poll said that 61% of Republicans didn't care that he could be convicted and that's not going to have the slightest impact on their support for Trump at all. So look, it's I, I, one of my columns in the post was entitled, you know, Ron DeSantis's last stand that, that this he's, he's got to do reasonably well tonight to have a good reason to stay around in this race. Haley can say, Hey, I'm, this is a bonus state for me. I'm putting most of my eggs in the New Hampshire basket. Christie's departure probably helps there a bit. Um, but I think right now, you know, if you're if you were a cautious better, so to speak, you'd bet on Trump winning tonight. Yeah, the by a bunch. the, 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 the momentum is really is real. Uh, I've invited the ambassador on anytime she wants this week. Did a run to Santa instead of the president. I'm Switzerland when it comes to this stuff. But I do believe in reality checks. And these that the 2012 rules don't apply with Donald Trump. 
For a reason that I think your boss at the National Review, Rich Lowry, wrote yesterday, Jack Smith is an arsonist. And I believe a lot of Republicans believe that Jack Smith is an arsonist. They may not. They may have aesthetic objections to Donald Trump, but they do not like what's going on in the justice system in the United States. What'd you make of Rich's piece? Yeah, I also would point out that, like, after a while, every effort to impede Trump from returning to the Oval Office starts to blur together. So you have Jack Smith and the criminal indictments, and then you also have the Colorado Supreme Court, and then you have the main secretary of state. And eventually it becomes, you know, people believe what reasonably that, you know, there are a whole bunch of people out there who want to stop Trump from being elected by any means necessary. And, you know, that if we, we, you know, that the closer Trump gets to the nomination and the closer Trump gets to beating an incumbent who is looking every day of the 81 years old that he is, you, you know, it's like, like like Biden didn't speak for publicly for about two weeks around the holidays. That's you know, like that's really weird for a president. And he did uh, not he announce the attack on the Houthis. That's even weirder. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like usually you get an Oval Office address. My fellow Americans tonight, we have struck back at, you know. Didn't get any of that. He doesn't do sit-down interviews anymore. He doesn't do press conferences anymore. You know, like, after a while, you're kind of like, okay, this is not because he doesn't want to do these things. This is because he probably can't do these things. And, you know, you think you're going to beat Donald Trump with that? I don't think that's a safe bet. Now, and, and, you know, Jim, Trump something you there said about his being against the Vietnam War, I do believe that older folks, and this was my experience with my parents, when they hit especially the 8-0 mark, begin to rely, even if they, I don't think he has any dementia or anything. I just think he's infirm, but they begin to rely on the old eight-track tapes in their head as opposed to the new data on their desk. And the old eight-track tapes in his head is BB's bad. Iran can be dealt with. The JCPOA was a good deal. And Bob Gates was wrong about me, and I'll show him. And and the old eight-tracks, they're not good. Uh, I was going to say, Hugh, I bet you you and I have both referred to the Baltimore Colts and, uh, you know, various other, you know, when, you're not, when your vocabulary hasn't been updated, you know, the, Houston I, mind, the, Chargers are still in, yeah. the, the Raiders are still in Oakland, you know. And so, like, these are, you know, like that that is minor. But the idea the worldview doesn't change very much. The worldview doesn't update very well. And, you know, the, the relationship with uh, Netanyahu was was pretty hostile during the Obama years. Reread Obama's volume one of his presidential autobiography. Um, and there's a lot of complaining about Bibi and the cynicism of Israeli politics and all that kind of stuff. I know I, I can understand. I know Biden tried to embrace Bibi at the very beginning of this conflict. But with each passing week, like, like the thing that's most bizarre about this is that the progressive left has decided that Hamas and the Houthis are the plucky underdogs who are fighting for the right, the good fight and who deserve our support and certainly should not be, you know, Smashed by the Israelis, should not be smashed by the uh, Hugh. Over the weekend, there was this angry mob outside the White House that was trying to beat down the doors and, and you know beat down the case. But no coverage in some very big institutions uh, that really you think like you'd think post January sixth this would be a big deal, right? This you know, and when they're they're pounding at the door, the gates of the White House, you're not the good guys, right? Yeah. This is not you know, oh yeah. good noble. Just we like both the right 60s, for the post. You know, which no, these are anti-American maniacs. We, we both write for the Post, and so I'm very reluctant to to criticize. I'm the Post slow. Is a fine, but, fine institution. Yeah. But they ordained by God, Trump's legal problems galvanize Iowa intellectuals. Includes in it 
a paragraph that says Trump has said Christians feel persecuted and that's been fact checked and it's wrong. And the the evangelicals are winning Supreme Court cases. Jim, if you have to win Supreme Court cases, it's because you're being persecuted. I mean, how do people not understand that? Because people have a the same, the same kind of thing we talked about. There, the people in their 80s don't want to update the software, don't want to update their frame of reference. Um, if you can point to you know pro-lifers who get arrested for praying outside of a uh, abortion clinic, while you know you go you go to CVS and the toothpaste is locked up, you know in Chicago you got to steal a thousand dollars worth of stuff before it's a felony, and you're kind of like, wait a minute, wait a minute, why is this considered a crime that they come down on it with a ton of bricks, but actual crime? They kind of shrug their shoulders at, and you're always hearing about some, you know, oh, this guy, you know, pushed a woman onto the uh, uh, you know, subway tracks up in New York City. He'd been arrested 14 times, but had never spent more than, you know, two days in jail or something. Like, we get these kind of stories, and this is exactly what I'm writing today's Morning Jolt about. This is why your listeners get hear about my newsletter before I finish writing it, because I'm always talking to you. Morning Jolt <laughs> is coming. Go sign up for it at National Review. Go follow Jim on X at Jim Garrity. Follow me in the next segment. We'll talk next week about Iowa and New Hampshire with Jim, and we'll see if we're right. We usually are, collectively. Stay tuned, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Get ready for a cinematic revolution. Experience the power of patriotism with The Relentless Patriot, hitting theaters nationwide with a special release on June 13th. Go to Fandango.com today to help support patriotism at its best. Brought to you by Global Ascension Studios, Hollywood's first ever conservative movie studio. This gripping documentary follows the remarkable journey of Scott Lebedo as he champions American values through his art. From stirring flag renditions to unwavering advocacy for our service members, Scott's story is one of passion and dedication. Don't miss your chance to be a part of history as the Relentless Patriot makes its special release debut. Mark your calendars for the special release June 13th and join us in celebrating American resilience and patriotism. Go to Fandango.com to find your local theater and order your tickets now before they're sold out. That's Fandango.com. Welcome back. Your dreams were your ticket. Welcome back indeed, America. For many, many years, John Campbell, Congressman Extraordinaire for 12 years, former California State Senator and California Assemblyman and National Association of Car Dealer, executive and manufacturer and seller of cars, John Campbell would come on once a week and be my guest host, and he was much beloved. But then he got bored and lazy, and he hadn't been about, he hadn't been awake before 6 a.m., I think in five years. But he's decided to come back, and I'm glad, John Campbell. You even got a shirt on this morning. Thank you. I, I do. I don't have my contact lenses in yet. I have my glasses. But you know what? It's dark at this time of the morning. Did you know that? It is very dark. I want people to know that lookthroughthechaos.com is where they can find what you write. And I want to tell them what we're going to be doing. If you can, in fact, keep to your your intention of actually getting up on Mondays and talking to me, every week we get economic data that I don't understand. For example, on Wednesday, we get retail sales, import and export prices. On Thursday, we get housing starts, jobless claims, and petroleum status. And on Friday, we get existing home sales and, and stuff like this. You actually read this stuff, don't you? I do. I, I read it all pretty much every day. And as as weeks go, this week, uh, that's all data that comes out. Markets will react. 
um, and, and so forth to that data if it is significantly different from what is anticipated. However, this is when you those particular um, data points are not that significant. What the markets will be watching more this week is actually Congress. And the market will presume that there is not going to be a shutdown because they always presume that uh, even if it's at the 11th hour or if it's at the 13th hour and just past uh, the end of time, but or, or when the um, uh, when the budget expires, but in time before anything actually shuts down. That's what the markets will presume. If something different looks like it's going to happen by the end of the week, markets won't like that and they will react. But this is not a week. Lately, the markets are more interested in two major factors. One is inflation, which there are two or three data points that come out every month about inflation. And the other is employment. Um, and there are several data points that always come out about employment. Neither of those are triggering this week. So uh, markets, what is happening, though, this week, in addition to what you mentioned, is earnings season is starting. So on Friday, you had a bunch of the big banks report, the Goldman Sachs, the J.P. Morgan's, Citibank, et cetera. It was somewhat mixed. Um, it wasn't uh, super great or super awful either way. Uh, but... Um, other companies will start to report this week, and markets will be certainly, probably more than anything, focused on those numbers as they roll out. Now, John, the one thing I want to make sure the audience who remembers you from the old days, and you used to guest host, and maybe you'll guest host again if you'll get up early enough, is that you were always sort of upbeat about Congress. You spent a dozen years there on the Budget Committee and on financial services. I think you might be very glad that you quit when you quit. You just retired. You didn't get defeated. You got tired and said, I'm done with this. Are you happy that you retired when you did? Because it's just been nuts to be in the Republican caucus for the last four years. Yeah, I mean, just to correct you slightly, we want to get data right. I was there for 10 years, not 12. Okay. Uh, but um, And I was on Budget Financial Services and also the Joint Economic Committee with the Senate, where I got to meet and know, know and work with a bunch of senators. Um, but yes, I retired 10 years ago now and it, and I, uh, it, I hung it up in part because, um, I worked hard. Congress is one of those jobs. I worked hard and not everybody did. I, I often tell people that Congress is exactly the way the founders, uh, designed it. It was not supposed to be the best and the brightest. It was supposed to be representative government, representative people. Some of the smartest people I've ever met were in Congress, some of the dumbest, some of the most honest, some of the more corrupt, and some of the hardest working and some of the laziest. There were some people who figured out a way to sort of phone it in. I was not one of those. I worked really hard. And back in when I was about ready to uh, retire and decide not to run for reelection in 2013, 2014, I was working so hard. And I would, at the end of the month or the day or the week or the year, sit back and look and say, all right, what did I get done? And the answer was nothing. And it was really frustrating for me to see what I thought were solutions to a bunch of problems, not the solutions I wanted, but the solutions you could get past, the solutions that could become law. And you just couldn't get them done, either because my leadership wouldn't let me do it or the Democratic leadership wouldn't let them do it or both. And, and so it just became frustrating to me. And, um, and I said, look, I'm, if I'm going to work this hard, I want to know that at the end, end of it, I got something done. And I could see at that point, this is 2014, 2015, that the atmosphere of accomplishment, I mean, I, I think one of my main 
um, gifts, if you will, is I, I can make a deal. I was a car dealer for 25 years, right? I can sniff a deal. I know where people are different things. I can see where to go to make something happen. And whether it was a car deal or a real estate deal, I did a lot of those. And I did a bunch of them in Congress, a bunch of them. Uh, but it became a point where I could sniff out the deal and I could say, okay, here's where we can go, but you couldn't get it done. And it seemed like the atmosphere for that was just going to get worse. I was right. It did get worse. Um, but I had no idea it would get to the point where it is today, to be frank and honest about it. You know, John Campbell, uh, I division. had breakfast yesterday with a fellow named Phil Brady, who was for a dozen years the executive director of the National Automobile Dealers Association. He's also... Yep. Uh, I, I remember Phil well. Yeah, Phil's a good friend. And he was deputy counsel to HW, so we we talk a lot, et cetera. And he was telling me, car dealers are people people. They actually know how to get stuff done. And the combination of your USC accounting degree, which I point out you are a USC grad, and it's a corrupt school, and you went to UCLA, and it's a corrupt school. I just want people to know that. But you're an accountant and a car dealer and an elected. Why are you still bothering to write lookthroughthechaos.com? Is it lookthroughthechaos.org or .com? .com. It's lookthroughthechaos.com. And I'm still writing about it because you can take the boy out of politics, but you can't take politics out of the boy. I care about this stuff. I mean, um, when I was growing up in the late 50s and 60s, we talked politics around our dinner table. We didn't talk sports. We didn't talk stuff like that. We talked politics. And so um, I care about this stuff. And I have five grandchildren and a six one in the oven. And, and uh, so um, I care about the country we're going to leave them, the world we're going to leave them. And I'm one of those people that... When there's a fight going on, and there is, um, I can't sit back and watch it. I, somehow I got to suit up, and I got to be in it. Now, maybe, now you're, you're maybe in Arizona now. Logistics. You left. You left right. like I did. And, you used to be a Californian. I talked to former Governor Pete Wilson uh, over the weekend. Uh, I met the fetching Mrs. Hewitt at Pete Wilson fundraiser in 1978, and I stand. The guy is just totally in agony over what's happened to the state he left behind. It was a great state. As recently as Pete Wilson's it, second term, a great state. It was, it was, it was. And unlike uh, Joe Biden, Pete Wilson is up there in years, but he is totally lucid. So sharp, uh, like Joe Biden. Oh my gosh! And, and I think what one of the uh, one of the I thought the most interesting points of the debate between Gavin Newsom and um, and Ron DeSantis was when moderator, I forget which one, asked uh, both of them to say something nice about the other state. Gavin Newsom ended up saying nothing about Florida. He wouldn't say anything nice. It was so easy. You know, they got a lot of beaches. It was just easy what he could have said. But what, what um, Ron DeSantis said, I thought was just perfect. He said, you know, I love California. It's beautiful. He says the weather is, is the best in the country. The beaches are great. It has all this diversity with the mountains and the forests and the, and the beaches and everything else. He says it's hard to screw it up so bad that people want to leave. But he says you've done that. You, you, Gavin Newsom and the Democrats have done it. You have screwed it up and made people want to leave what is kind of sort of a, a climatological and um, – uh, geographic paradise. Now, I got to ask you yeah, this because Phil Brady yeah. told me this yesterday. I didn't know that. I'm no longer a Californian, so I didn't know this. The highest marginal rate of income tax in California, state taxes went up to 14.4% on January 1. 14, as opposed to Florida, which is zero, Arizona, which is, I think, two and a half, and Virginia, which is five and a quarter. What, what do sane people do? 
They, they leave. They leave. They leave. That is what they do. And that's correct. It is now 14 point. Uh, Four percent, and uh, um, so I keep tabs of things there. I still have lots of friends there. I still give speeches there, and um, and my kids and grandkids, unfortunately, <laughs> are there. Uh, uh, I, I I think they ought to move, but it's not my decision. And they have a lot of friends. They went to school there, and and uh, their wives are from there, and so forth. So they're still there. So I keep very close tabs on the state, and I want it to recover. I want it to get better. I want I want it to be what it was, like you said, back when Pete Wilson was governor in the nineties. Uh, but right now it's getting worse, not better. Uh, one of the interesting uh, for, did you watch the uh, what happened with the Shohei Otani contract? Yes, that, you know Shohei, right? So he deferred seven hundred million dollars. He's only going to get twenty four million in the ten years he plays. The rest is going to be paid out after he retires. Part of the reason he did that is he's avoiding that fourteen point four percent. So the state controller of California comes out last week and wants to change the law, federal law, okay, and state law. So you can't do deferred income because, because they see this as Shohei Otani and his attorneys. He's Japanese. He doesn't even speak English. He won't be a resident of the United States then, most likely. He'll go back. He lives in Japan. He's very Japanese. He's playing here for money and, and because that's his sport. But, um, but, so, but he avoids 14.4% tax on $680 million dollars. And so the state of California is trying to figure out how they can make sure that nobody else can do that again. I really, I really do not Un- know. Unbelievable. <laughs> I do not know how anyone operates any business in this state. Now, I've got buddies like Rhett Rasmussen, who runs BestHotGrill.com, and he's here for good, and he's making it work. But I do not know over the long term how this state can compete with Tennessee, Florida, Texas, Virginia, and the right-to-work states with income tax rates below 7%. Do you? California has tremendous natural advantages that we just discussed. We just discussed the climate, but it has some economic ones now, which is that it's on the Pacific Rim. And so being on the Pacific Rim with all the the vibrancy in the Far East economically, which was China for a while and now is actually more Japan and Korea, but um, but but the Philippines or Indonesia or whatever, uh, that geography uh, gives it a lot of natural advantages. There are certain things California will do and that being on the ocean enables it to do with shipping and other things like that. But what I think it, the risk is, is California for my entire life, and I'm 68 years old, has been powered always by big industry. They're Not anymore. Going away. All right, we're, we're out of time. Look through the chaos.com. Look through the chaos.com. Carrie Lake, if you're listening, get John Campbell to be your economic advisor. He's in Arizona now. He'll help you win. Look through the chaos.com and come right back, America. Thank you, John Campbell. It's good to see you again. I want to remind everyone a great sponsor of the program is myphdweightloss.com. Generalissimo went on that program more than a year ago, lost 50 pounds. He's kept it off. And uh, stress eating is not allowed, I don't believe, even though we're under a lot of... Uh, sure uh, tempted uh, to this week, aren't we? Uh, everybody is. I, but, but we don't... They, I'm sure they give you tricks of the trade to combat that, because that's one of the habits. You broke that habit. You're not going by Del Taco or Taco no. Bell. Have not. No. You haven't relapsed. Have not relapsed. And um, that is... A, and it's healthy, it's wise, it's yes. productive. 864-644-1900. That's... 864-644. 644-1900. Madam President, members of the court, on Saturday, October 7th, 
a Jewish religious holiday. Thousands of Hamas and other militants breached Israeli sovereign territory by sea, land and air, invading over 20 Israeli communities, bases and the site of a music festival. What proceeded under the cover of thousands of rockets fired indiscriminately into Israel was the wholesale massacre, mutilation, rape and abduction of as many citizens as the terrorists could find before Israel's forces repelled them. Openly displaying elation, they tortured children in front of parents and parents in front of children, burned people, including infants, alive, and systematically raped and mutilated scores of women, men, and children. All told, some 1,200 people were butchered that day, more than 5,500 maimed, and some 240 hostages abducted, including infants, entire families, persons with disabilities, and Holocaust survivors, some of whom have since been executed, many of whom have been tortured, sexually abused, and starved in captivity. Representatives of the hostages' families are in this courtroom today, and we acknowledge their presence and their boundless suffering. We know of the brutality of October 7th, not only from the harrowing testimonies of the survivors, the unmistakable proof of carnage and sadism left behind, and the forensic evidence taken at the scene. We know it because the assailants proudly filmed and broadcast their barbarism. The events of that day are all but ignored in the applicant's submissions, but we are compelled to share with the court some fraction of its horror, the largest calculated mass murder of Jews in a single day since the Holocaust. We do so not because these acts, however sadistic and systematic, release Israel of its obligations to uphold the law as it defends its citizens and territory. That is unquestionable. We do so because it is impossible to understand the armed conflict in Gaza without appreciating the nature of the threat that Israel is facing and the brutality and lawlessness of the armed force confronting it. In the volume of materials submitted to members of the court, access has been provided to a portion of the raw footage for separate screening. But I am obliged to put before the court today some small fragment of the scenes of unfathomable cruelty that took place in hundreds of locations on that horrible day. Johnny Simantov, a wheat farmer, and his wife Tamar, an activist for women's rights, lived in kibbutz near Oz. When the rocket fire started, they hid in the safe room with their four-year-old son, Omer, and their six-year-old twins, Arbel and Shachar. During their rampage, Hamas militants set fire to their house. Johnny texted his sister, Renee, they're here, they're burning us, we're suffocating. The whole family was burned alive to ashes, making DNA identification especially difficult. A survivor of the Nova Music Festival massacre 
testified to police to witnessing a Hamas militant brutally raping a young woman as another militant cut off her breast and toyed with it. A second militant then raped her again, shooting her in the head while still inside her. In one video recorded by a home surveillance system, a Hamas militant throws a grenade into a safe room where a father and his two sons have rushed to hide. The father is killed, the two sons are injured and bleeding as a militant pulls them into the living room. One child can be heard screaming to his brother, why am I alive? I can't see anything. They're going to kill us. The militant casually opens the fridge, takes out a bottle and drinks. And then there is this recording from Kibbutz Mefalsim. As stated, none of these atrocities absolve Israel of its obligations under the law. But they do enable the court to appreciate three core aspects of the present proceedings, which the applicant has obscured from view. First, that if there have been acts that may be characterized as genocidal, then they have been per perpetrated against Israel. If there is a concern about the obligations of states under the Genocide Convention, then it is in relation to their responsibilities to act against Hamas's proudly declared agenda of annihilation, which is not a secret and is not in doubt. The annihilationist language of Hamas's charter is repeated regularly by its leaders with the goal, in the words of one member of Hamas's political bureau, of the cleansing of Palestine of the filth of the Jews. It is expressed no less chillingly in the words of senior Hamas member Razi Hamad to Lebanese television on October 24, 2023, who refers to the October 7th attacks, what Hamas calls the Al-Aqsa flood, as follows. <laughs> In the continuation of this interview, Hamas is asked, Hamad is asked, does that mean the annihilation of Israel? Yes, of course, he says. The existence of Israel is illogical. And then he says, nobody should blame us for the things we do on October 7th, October 10th, October 1 millionth. Everything we do is justified, end quote. Given that on October 7th, before any military response by Israel, South Africa issued an official statement blaming Israel for, quote, the recent conflagration essentially blaming Israel for the murder of its own citizens, 
one wonders whether the applicant agrees. Second, it is in response to the slaughter of October 7th, which Hamas openly vows to repeat, and to the ongoing attacks against it from Gaza, that Israel has the inherent right to take all legitimate measures to defend its citizens and secure the release of the hostages. This right is also not in doubt. It has been acknowledged by states across the world. Astonishingly, the court has been requested to indicate a provisional measure calling on Israel to suspend its military operations. But this amounts to an attempt to deny Israel its ability to meet its obligations to the defense of its citizens, to the hostages, and to over 110,000 internally displaced Israelis unable to safely return to their homes. The applicant in its submissions to the court makes almost no mention of the ongoing humanitarian suffering of Israel's citizens at the hands of Hamas and treats the hostages still held in captivity as barely an afterthought. But is there a reason these people on your screen are unworthy of protection? Hamas is not a party to these proceedings. The applicant, by its request, seeks to thwart Israel's inherent right to defend itself, to let Hamas not just get away with its murder, literally, but render Israel defenseless as Hamas continues to commit it. Yesterday, counsel for the applicant made the astonishing claim that Israel was denied this right, and as a matter of fact, should not be able to protect itself from Hamas's attacks. But allow me to draw attention to these words written by Professor Vaughan Lowe. Quote, the source of the attack, whether a state or non-state actor, is irrelevant to the existence of the right to defense. Force may be used to avert a threat because no one and no state is obliged by law passively to suffer the delivery of an attack. Israel agrees with these words, as I suspect would any sovereign state. If the claim of the applicant now is that in the armed conflict between Israel and Hamas, Israel must be denied the ability to defend its citizens, then the absurd upshot of South Africa's argument is this. Under the guise of the allegation against Israel of genocide, this court is asked to call for an end to operations against the ongoing attacks of an organization that pursues an actual genocidal agenda, an organization that has violated every past ceasefire and used it to rearm and plan new atrocities, an organization that declares its unequivocal resolve to advance its genocidal plans. That is an unconscionable request, and it is respectfully submitted that it cannot stand. Third, the court is informed of the events of October 7th because if there are any provisional measures that should appropriately be indicated here, they are indeed with respect to South Africa. It is a matter of public record that South Africa enjoys close relations with Hamas, despite its formal recognition as a terrorist organization by numerous states across the world. These relations have continued unabated even after the October 7th atrocities.
South Africa has long hosted and celebrated its ties with Hamas figures, including a senior Hamas delegation that, incredibly, visited the country for a, quote, solidarity gathering just weeks after the massacre. In justifying instituting proceedings, South Africa makes much of its obligations under the Genocide Convention. It seems fitting then that it be instructed to comply with those obligations itself, to end its own language of delegitimization of Israel's existence, end its support for Hamas, and use its influence with this organization so that Hamas permanently ends its campaign of genocidal terror and releases the hostages. Madam President, members of the court, the hostilities between Israel and Hamas have exacted a terrible toll on both Israelis and Palestinians. But any genuine effort to understand the cause of this toll must take account of the horrendous reality created by Hamas within the Gaza Strip. When Israel withdrew all its soldiers and civilians from Gaza in 2005, it left a coastal area with the potential to become a political and economic success story. Hamas's violent takeover in 2007 changed all that. Over the past 16 years of its rule, Hamas has smuggled countless weapons into Gaza and has diverted billions in international aid, not to build schools, hospitals, or shelters to protect its population from the dangers of the attacks it launched against Israel over many years, but rather to turn massive swaths of the civilian infrastructure into perhaps the most sophisticated terrorist stronghold in the history of urban warfare. Remarkably, counsel for the applicant described the suffering in Gaza as unparalleled and unprecedented, as if they are unaware of the utter devastation wrought in wars that have raged just in recent years around the world. Sadly, the civilian suffering in warfare is not unique to Gaza. What is actually unparalleled and unprecedented is the degree to which Hamas has entrenched itself within the civilian population and made Palestinian civilian suffering an integral part of its strategy. Hamas has systematically and unlawfully embedded its military operations, militants and assets throughout Gaza within and beneath densely populated civilian areas. It has built an extensive warren of underground tunnels for its leaders and fighters several hundred miles in length throughout the Strip with thousands of access points and terrorist hubs located in homes, mosques, UN facilities, schools, and perhaps most shockingly, hospitals. This is not an occasional tactic. It is an integrated, pre-planned, extensive, and abhorrent method of warfare purposely and methodically murdering civilians, firing rockets indiscriminately, systematically using civilians, sensitive sites, and civilian objects as shields, stealing and hoarding humanitarian supplies, allowing those under its control to suffer so that it can fuel its fighters and terrorist campaign. The appalling suffering of civilians 
both Israeli and Palestinian, is first and foremost the result of this despicable strategy. The horrible cost of Hamas not only failing to protect its civilians, but actively sacrificing them for its own propaganda and military benefit. And if Hamas abandons this strategy, releases the hostages, lays down its arms, the hostilities and suffering would end. Madam President, members of the court, there are many distortions in the applicant's submission to the court, but as shall be demonstrated by counsel, there is one that overshadows them all. In the applicant's telling, it is almost as if there is no intensive armed conflict taking place between two parties at all. No grave threat to Israel and its citizens. Only an Israeli assault on Gaza. The court is told of widespread damage to buildings, but it is not told, for example, how many thousands of those buildings were destroyed because they were booby-trapped by Hamas. How many became legitimate targets because of the strategy of using civilian objects and protected sites for military purposes? How many buildings were struck by over 2,000 indiscriminate terrorist rockets that misfired and landed in Gaza itself? The court is told of over 23,000 casualties. As the applicant repeats, as many have, unverified statistics provided by Hamas itself hardly a reliable source. Every civilian casualty in this conflict is a human tragedy that demands our compassion. But the court is not told how many thousands of casualties are in fact militants, how many were killed by Hamas fire, how many were civilians taking direct part in hostilities, and just how many are the result of legitimate and proportionate use of force against military targets, even if tragic. And the court is also told of the dire humanitarian situation in Gaza. But it is not told of Hamas's practice of stealing and hoarding aid. It is not told of the extensive Israeli efforts to mitigate civilian harm, of the humanitarian initiatives being undertaken to enable the flow of supplies and provide medical attention to the wounded. The applicant purports to describe the reality in Gaza, but it is as if Hamas and its total contempt for civilian life just do not exist as a direct cause of that reality. Hamas is widely estimated to have over 30,000 fighters and is known to bring minors no older than 15 or 16 into its ranks. They are coming for us. But in South Africa's telling, they have all but disappeared. There are no explosives in mosques and schools and children's bedrooms, no ambulances used to transport fighters, no tunnels and terrorist hubs under sensitive sites, no fighters dressed as civilians, no commandeering of aid trucks, no firing from civilian homes, UN facilities and even safe zones. There is only Israel acting in Gaza. The applicant is essentially asking the court to substitute the lens of armed conflict between a state and a lawless terrorist organization with the lens of a so-called genocide 
of a state against a civilian population. But it is not offering the court a lens. It is offering it a blindfold. Madam President, members of the court, the nightmarish environment created by Hamas has been concealed by the applicant, but it is the environment in which Israel is compelled to operate. Israel is committed, as it must be, to comply with the law, but it does so in the face of Hamas's utter contempt for the law. It is committed, as it must be, to demonstrate humanity, but it does so in the face of Hamas's utter inhumanity. As will be presented by Council, these commitments are a matter of express government policy, military directives and procedures. They are also an expression of Israel's core values. And as shall also be shown, they are matched by genuine measures on the ground to mitigate civilian harm under the unprecedented and excruciating conditions of warfare created by Hamas. It is plainly inconceivable under the terms set by this very court that a state conducting itself in this way, in these circumstances, may be said to be engaged in genocide, not even prima facie. The key component of genocide, the intention to destroy a people in whole or in part, is totally lacking. What Israel seeks by operating in Gaza is not to destroy a people, but to protect the people, its people, who are under attack on multiple fronts, and to do so in accordance with the law, even as it faces a heartless enemy determined to use that very commitment against it. As will be detailed by Council, Israel's lawful aims in Gaza have been clearly and repeatedly articulated by its Prime Minister, its Defence Minister and all members of the War Cabinet. As the Prime Minister reiterated yet again this week, Israel is fighting Hamas terrorists, not the civilian population. Israel aims to ensure that Gaza can never again be used as a launch pad for terrorism. As the Prime Minister reaffirms, Israel seeks neither to permanently occupy Gaza or to displace its civilian population. It wants to create a better future for Israelis and Palestinians alike where both can live in peace, thrive and prosper, and where the Palestinian people have all the power to govern themselves, but not the capacity to threaten Israel. If there is a threat to that vision, if there is a humanitarian threat to the Palestinian civilians of Gaza, it stems primarily from the fact that they have lived under the control of a genocidal terrorist organization that has total disregard for their life and well-being. That organization, Hamas, and its sponsors seek to deny Israel, Palestinians, and Arab states across the region the ability to advance a common future of peace, coexistence, security, and prosperity. Israel is in a war of defense against Hamas, not against the Palestinian people to ensure that they do not succeed. In these circumstances, there can hardly be a charge more false and more malevolent 
than the allegation against Israel of genocide. The applicant has regrettably engaged in a transparent attempt to abuse the Convention's compulsory jurisdiction mechanism, and in particular the provisional measures phase of proceedings, to bring under the purview of the Court matters over which, in truth, it lacks jurisdiction. Madam President, members of the Court, the Genocide Convention was a solemn promise made to the Jewish people and to all peoples of never again. The applicant, in effect, invites the court to betray that promise. If the term genocide can be so diminished in the way that it advocates, if provisional measures can be triggered in the way that it suggests, the convention becomes an aggressor's charter. It will reward, indeed encourage, the terrorists who hide behind civilians at the expense of the states seeking to defend against them. To maintain the integrity of the Genocide Convention, to maintain its promise and the Court's own role as its guardian, it is respectfully submitted that the application and request should be dismissed for what they are, a libel designed to deny Israel the right to defend itself according to the law from the unprecedented terrorist onslaught it continues to face and to free the 136 hostages Hamas still holds. I thank you for your kind attention. May I ask, Madam President, that you call Professor Shaw to the podium.